Shalom. This is the Gospel according to Moses, Exodus, and this is Reverend John Ferret. And we're in Lesson 8, where we're going to focus in on more of Exodus chapter 3, basically verses 9 through 17. Now, I'm going to say this. If there ever was a lesson for the Passover season, this is it. This, this is just so amazing. So let's delve into it right away, going into Exodus 3, verses 9 through 17. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which with, the, which with, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the first thing I'd like to study is verses 3.8 and 3.17. And in 3.8, we talk about the six nations and a land flowing with milk and honey. And also in 3.7, we read about six pagan tribes, nations, clans, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, Recall, it's actually seven pagan tribes or clans. God adds the Girgashites in Deuteronomy 7 once. Now, we consider this in the previous session. Seven pagan clans or nations, and Jesus feeds the 4,000, and he feeds the 4,000 on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which was basically a pagan area. Oh, there may be some Jews there, but the Jews that probably went there were probably without religion. He feeds 4,000 on the pagan side of the lake, and there are seven baskets left over. If you recall, Jesus actually fed 5,000 in the area of the religious Jews, and how many baskets were left over? Twelve. So in the previous session, we went into this a lot deeper. It's as if Jesus is saying he's the bread of life for 
the Jew, and the bread of life for Gentiles. But there's this other phrase. God repeats that this is going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I first visited Israel, and our wonderful teacher, he taught us that a land flowing with milk and honey, what that really means is that bees make their hives in the limestone rocks, which are really easy to drill and scrape, a lot of holes in them so that a beehive is obviously an easy place to make it in limestone rock. And indeed, that was the case. We did, we saw that. So the bees are coming out of the land, the land flowing with bees. Now, there's no good answer on the land flowing with milk, or at least our guide did not have a good answer. But once again, I'm indebted to Dennis Prager. And again, we know Dennis Prager, who's a conservative talk show host, but he is a deeply religious Jew. And when you get to know Dennis Prager as a scholar, as an academic, as an intellect, a great intellect of our time, one focus of his life is teaching Torah, teaching the first five books of the Bible. And matter of fact, he does this for Jew, and he does it for Gentile, for those Jews who practice Judaism and those Gentiles who practice Christianity. He's already got two of his books out called The Rational Bible Genesis and The Rational Bible Exodus. And so, indeed, with regards to the statement on a land flowing with milk and honey, I want to quote from Dennis's Torah commentary, The Rational Bible Exodus. He goes on to explain, explain that in the JPS Torah commentary by, by Sarna, that milk here refers to goat's milk. A land flowing with milk therefore suggests ample pasturage and the prospect of much meat, hide, and wool. And honey here refers to the thick, sweet syrup produced from dates, not to the honey produced from bees. Milk and honey were considered among the chief necessities of human life in the ancient Near East, and their combination was thought to constitute a highly nutritious diet. Obviously, milk being rich in protein, and the dry date rich in carbohydrates. Indeed, some Arab tribes are known to subsist for months at a time solely on milk and honey. Amazing, just amazing. These phrases, like a land flowing with milk and honey, they're clearly understood 3,400 years ago. To us, it sounds strange. We're trying to see how this fits to our experiences when they don't fit. So in the ancient Near East, 3,400 years ago, this is simple. And again, we want to put the Bible in its historical context. It was written to them. What did they hear? What did they understand? And once we put the Bible back into its historical context and its cultural context, and in this case, 3,400 years ago, our understanding is enriched. Our understanding of the Bible is enhanced. Now, another small point is going to be in verse 10 and in verse 10 
We read, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Again, I thank Dennis Prager's insights. God says, Moses, you're going to bring them out, out of Egypt. And matter of fact, in verse 12, it even says, you're even going to bring them to this mountain. But there's no mention at all that Moses will go to the land of the Canaanite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. There's no mention here by God that he will enter the promised land. Is this perhaps a way that God is predicting the future? Perhaps. Moses doesn't get it at this time. Doesn't understand the, obviously, the end of all of this process that he's about to enter. And we ask ourselves the question, is God arranging events? He already knows that Moses is going to sin. He already knows Moses can't get in. But if he could, is it perhaps that if Moses did go in with the people, that the Hebrews might turn away from the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and treat Moses as a God they had assimilated in that culture? It's an interesting thought. It's a fascinating conjecture, theory. And we'll just leave it there because we can't prove it. Now, a major point that I would, I'd like to, actually two major points I'd like to focus in on in this lesson is again go back to verse 10 where the phrase is, I will send you. Later on in Exodus 7.1, we get to the phrase, that God tells Moses that you're going to be as God to Pharaoh. Now, in Raphael Patai's book, The Messiah Texts, we see that the Jewish people, the rabbis in Judaism and so on, they looked upon Moses as the first redeemer, and they made connections to the Messiah. And they said the Messiah, and that's Jesus to us, is the ultimate redeemer. And in Judaism, Moses and the Messiah are connected. Quoting from Raphael Pate's book, For it is a remarkable fact that the major features comprised in the concept of Messiah, which developed fully between the 2nd and 12th centuries AD, are outlined in the biblical story of Moses, whose main materials were set forth certainly not later than the 6th century BC. So for instance, here's some connections. The Messiah is of the most noble royal line known in Israel, that is the house of David. And Moses is of the noble, noblest line that extended in those early days among the children of Israel, and that's the family of Levi or Levi. They both had great tasks for Messiah and Moses. And they were destined to fulfill, fulfill the redemption of their people from bondage. Both are to lead their people back to the promised land, the holy land, the land of the fathers. At the time of the advent of both, the people have suffered for a long time, for many generations. But in the absence of divine help, they have been unable, unable to better their lot. Both Moses and Messiah spend an inordinately long time waiting for the divinely ordained moment when they can embark on their mission of salvation. And so it goes 
just amazing to see the connections. Now, for us, Messiah is Jesus. We're going to see some of these connections because it's right here in front of us. In verse 10, God says, I'm sending you, Moses. He sent. In John chapter 20, verse 21, what do we read? God sent Jesus. God sent the Messiah. Like Moses, here in Exodus, and I believe that's going to be in chapter 7, Moses is going to be as God to Pharaoh, a representative of God. But when we take a look at Jesus, John 14, 9, where he says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Messiah is God. He is God standing in front of all nations. But the connections go on. Moses will be given words to say by God. He's, God is basically telling Moses, don't worry about the words. I'll give them to you. You can find this in Exodus 4, verse 12. You can find this in Exodus 4, verse 15. Exodus 6, verse 29. But it's the same for Messiah. It's the same for Jesus. We read this in John 17, verses 8 through 9. Jesus is saying, The words that you've given me, Father, they're from you. I've given them, meaning his disciples. And in John 12, verse 49, the words of the Father were commanded for Jesus to speak. Commanded. And both of them, Messiah and Moses, Messiah, Jesus, and Moses. We have them linked with being shepherds. Uh, that's clear, right? In the beginning here of Exodus chapter 3, Moses is a shepherd. But Messiah, Jesus, says, I am the good shepherd. And both of them are at the mountain of God. Exodus 3, 1, you can read it for yourself, Sinai, or Horeb, is the mountain of God. And this is where God gives his people, Israel, a new covenant. But then we get to Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3, or Micah 4, verses 1 through 2, or Isaiah 66, 20. The mountain of God moved to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, through Messiah, we're able to enter the new covenant at the mountain of God. Amazing. But on top of this, this involves us as well. Now, as Christians, we are really to be considered disciples. Now, keep that in mind as we go forward now, just focusing in on that verse 10. For Moses, God has a purpose in mind. And with regards to that purpose in mind, we can read this in Ezekiel 36 verses 22 through 23. Let's listen to the purposes of God. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, there's that word Lord God again, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, 
when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Through God's choice of Israel. And God says to them, and we'll be seeing this in chapter 4, this is God's firstborn son. Singular. Israel is God's firstborn son. You might say, when was Israel born anew? At Sinai. And the new covenant. They became a new nation, a nation of priests. They are God's firstborn son. And it... <laughs> And God is saying, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing this for the sake of all nations. We read this in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6. The purpose. He's saying, you, Israel, you're going to be a light to all the nations to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. You've got to read this. Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 Again, Israel is going to be a light to the nations to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. The word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus' name in Hebrew. Because Jesus' name is salvation. It's as if God is saying to Israel, you're going to be a light to the nations, Israel, to bring my Jesus, my Yeshua, to the ends of the earth. All this involves bringing all peoples to him. But they failed they were to produce good fruit. They were considered God's vineyard, but they failed. Let's take a look at this in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I will not, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So Israel couldn't fulfill its mission that we read about in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. But God can't be stopped. You can read this in Isaiah 14, 24. Now putting this in context in Isaiah 14, we're talking about God's judgment that's about to come on Assyria. But there's a statement God makes in 1424 that really is a general statement about who God is. Listen to this. 
The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended it, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. God can't be stopped. Now let's consider Messiah. The purpose hasn't changed. Just as we read in Ezekiel 36. But now what's fascinating is it's ours. Let's take a look at this. Moses was chosen by God. He was chosen by God right there as we're reading in Exodus 3, 9. I'm going to send you, Moses. But Messiah, it says it clear. God says it. That Messiah, he is my chosen one. Jesus, my chosen one. The very words, you can find this in Luke 9.35, which is really a reference to Isaiah 42.1. Now for Moses, all of Israel, the firstborn son, followed Moses. As disciples, we're born again. We're born again in Messiah Jesus. This is John 3, verses 3 through 6. And who do we follow? Who do we follow? We follow Messiah Jesus. And what's our purpose? What are we ordered to do? Remember what Jesus says before he ascends to the Father. Do you find this in Acts 1, verse 8? You're going to stay here until you receive power on high. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, my witnesses. This is related to Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6. A witness testifies. A witness is that word that's used in a court to testify. And they're going to be testifying, they're going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But to testify of who? To testify of what? They're going to be testifying about Jesus. They're going to be testifying about Yeshua. He is the salvation of the Lord. He's the salvation of God. And they will testify of the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. The task has now come to us, Jew and Gentile alike, who are Messianic believers, Christian believers, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah and Savior. Moses, Exodus 3, verse 10. He's going to lead them out of bondage. And for Messiah, you remember when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he quoted from Isaiah 61 when he said, I have come to set the captives free, and he's going to lead us out of the bondage of sin. These are amazing connections of Moses and Israel and the mission and Messiah, and us, and the mission. Now for us, we look at the New Testament and we take a look, and for the first time we hear the word disciple or discipleship or apostles, and we think this is something new. doesn't appear in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, but it does. This is, this is an amazing benefit and blessing to us and to the Messianic believers before 100 AD as we take a look at the entirety of the veracity of the Bible 
and to realize that the New Testament is based upon the Old Testament. The Messianic scriptures are based upon the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus says it in John 5.39 that he probably says it in 24 to 30 AD that all scripture testifies of him and all they had in 24 to 30 AD was the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. So as we study Torah, it's clear. We do see Jesus in the Torah. Just like he said, we see the gospel. We see the mission. No wonder, you might say, why I call it the gospel according to Moses. Now the second major focus in this lesson is Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. God said to Moses, I am who am. I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. In verse 15, I think most of your Bibles will have the word LORD in all caps. And where this comes from is the Jewish people, probably and even into Jesus' day, don't say God's name. They do not pronounce the, trap, the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, yud Hey vav Hey. Now this is based upon the second commandment, which we're going to get into Exodus 20, and basically don't take God's name in vain. And we're going to study it in much more depth when we get there. So Jews substitute a word when they're coming across yud Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew scriptures, and they'll substitute the word Adonai. Or they'll substitute the word Hashem. Hashem basically means the name. God has the name. Now our Bibles, Christian Bibles, follow that tradition. So when you see the word Lord in all caps, that means in the original Hebrew is God's name. yud Hey vav Hey. that's in verse 15. His name, God's name, that will be his name forever. Now some pronounce yud Hey vav Hey as Yahweh. There are some people who pronounce the, tra- the tetragrammaton as Yehovah. For me, I pronounce it Yahweh. Now, uh, I have two articles that are linked at the website, so if you find this session, and it's pretty clear, the picture for this session is the yud heh vav in a nice gold plate. You'll see it for Lesson 8 in the Gospel According to Moses, Exodus. The first article is Yehovah, A Christian Misunderstanding by David Biven from the School of the Synoptic Gospels. The website is uh, Jerusalem Perspective. And the other one is from 119 Ministries, Why God's Name is Not Yehovah. And Yehovah is clearly wrong. There are few in the church who actually study Judaism, the development of Judaism in its historical perspective and the, and the coming of the Bible in its historical perspective and putting it into in actual history. 
Now, I pronounce it Yahweh. I've got a number of different reasons, but let's let the debate and the discussion continue. It's been lost, or the, the actual pronunciation of God's name has probably been lost perhaps forever. And today, scholars agree that today, all we have now is opinion and conjecture. But again, let's leave that aside. We're taking a look at the name of God, yod heh vav -Hey. Now, I'll pronounce it Yahweh for the sake of this lesson. And I pronounce it Yahweh because there's no W sound in Hebrew. So it can't be Yahweh. That doesn't make any sense. But again, the purpose of this class, or one of the purposes of this class, is what did the Hebrews in Egypt 3,400 years ago understand? What did they understand when they heard this? What did they understand when Moses comes back to the elders, he comes back to their various slave quarters, there in Goshen, and he tells them the name of the Lord God, Yahweh. Now remember, in previous lessons we talked about the fact that most of the Hebrews had assimilated in the Egyptian culture. They bought into probably the Egyptian religion. Probably most forgot the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, if you're a Hebrew and you're in Egypt, all the gods of Egypt had names. And a name in the ancient Near East for a person, a god, or anything is the essence of that being. The, so in, in terms of the names, it's the essence of that God. For instance, you've heard of Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra was the head God during the 18th dynasty at the time of the Exodus. What does Amun-Ra mean from Egyptian to English? Amun basically means the hidden God. Ra, the sun. Put it all together, the hidden God who is the sun. Isis, again, an Egyptian goddess. Her name means throne. There is a goddess called Ma'at. She's a winged goddess, and she has an ostrich feather on her head, as, as differentiated from Isis, who is also looks like the same winged goddess, but she has a throne on her head, because Isis means throne. Ma'at, she's got this feather. Ma'at, in Egyptian, means truth, harmony or balance these names mean something they're giving you these names i have give you the essence of that god but god's name from all the scholarship implies the word to be or the word is so for them 3400 years ago and us god is saying he is the only god that is he is the only God that is then and now and in the future. He just is. He was, he is back then, he is now, and he is forever. Let's consider Isaiah 45, verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has de since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, all caps? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me, Yahweh. I am who am and will always be. Now there's that phrase, no other gods besides me. 
In Hebrew, it's Ani, Yahweh, Yvein, Od Elohim, Mibal Adeel. No other gods besides me. The Hebrew word there is Vein, and it really is coming from the Hebrew word Ain, which is H369 in terms of the Strong's number. And Ain basically means from the Gesenius Hebrew lexicon, it means nothing. It means empty. It means a vacuum. It means not existent. Yahweh. His name means is. Isaiah 45.21 We have the Hebrew word Ain. Basically means is not. Does not exist. Amun-Ra is not. Osiris is not. The God of the Canaanites, Baal, is not. Zeus is not. Jupiter is not. Allah is not. God is the only God that is because his name means is. All other so-called gods, Ain, are not. This is an awesome declaration, a clear and direct attack against all other man-made gods. Yahweh. This is his name forever. And he does this in the season of Passover. We're just coming into this in our study here in Exodus. But there's something even more extraordinary. Jesus has another name. Now I invite you to study this concept in a far deeper way. I've done two lessons. One is a podcast, audio, and it's called What's Your Name? If you go to the website, lightofmenorah.org, all one word, Light of Menorah, M-E-N-O-R-A-H, and you found this lesson, again, look for the yud Hey vav Hey with the golden plate and so on, you'll see it you'll see a search window. And in the search window, you can type in, what's your name? And you will come up with two lessons, truth nuggets, about a key verses in Philippians chapter 2. You remember it. At the name of uh, Jesus has been given the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, etc. That's what that, that's all about. The other lesson is a new video. The new video is This Is My Name, and it's available at YouTube. And it's very easy to find. Go to the website, lightofmenorah.org, and once you find the homepage there, you can see on the right side or the left side, you'll see a YouTube logo. The YouTube logo will take you directly to all the videos from Light of Menorah, and it will be very easy to find that This Is My Name Forever. You'll see an Egyptian temple, uh, a nice picture of an Egyptian, uh, the ruins of an Egyptian temple. Take a look at these two lessons to go into a deeper way on the deity of Jesus. Now, Jesus, when I just told you he has another name, he says it. He tells us his other name. <laughs> you don't have to argue with me. Argue with Yeshua. We read this in John 17. 
9 through 11. And this is at Passover. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things are mine, are your, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. What did Jesus say? He said, your name, Father, you have given me. What is the Father's name? Yahweh. What's Jesus saying? He's been given the Father's name. At the season of Passover, when God first declared what his name was to Moses, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. We hear Yahweh say in Isaiah 44, 6, Ahi Rishon ve'ahi akaron. Ahi Rishon ve'ahi akaron. I am the first and the last. And we hear Jesus say the same thing in Revelation 22. Ahi Rishon ve'ahi akaron. I am the first and the last. When did Jesus ever say he's God? He just did. Shalom.